All right, we've got a bunch of uh, text messages coming through here this morning. Let me see here. Where do we start? Okay, so here we go. Yesterday I used cash to buy a snack for the first time in many years, and I actually felt strange or weird to do it. <laughs> I don't ever remember using I honestly do not remember how long it has been used since I used cash. I, I did to buy the same, like at the petrol station. For once, I paid with cash, and I asked the guy, "Can I can I pay with cash?" Because I was just checking, and he's like, "If you want." <laughs> <laughs> Probably the first cash you'd seen all day. Um, amazing how many people live in a parallel world. I only have cash in my wallet for emergencies, mm. and. Well, I don't carry cash for emergencies. I carry my card for emergencies. And emergencies when the battery goes flat on my phone and I can't use the uh, PayWave thing on my phone. Mm-hmm. I had to do that yesterday mm. for about the second time ever. It's like, oh, my phone is flat. I'm going to have to use my plastic card. <laughs> Dig it out, find it. Yep, still works. <laughs> Haven't used that for a long time. Um, but, yeah, definitely a uh, an interesting world. It's, it's interesting if you go to a developing country where they don't have plastic. Mm-hmm. Well, they have just basically very little plastic. You know, when, when we were in Ethiopia, for instance, uh, it was all a cash society. And it was just kind of strange to get used to. Mm. And, yeah, okay. Uh, let me see here. As for assisted suicide, that is a hard one. I, I will agree. Yeah. This is a hard one because from an emotional perspective, I look at it and go, you know what, I don't want to die a suffering, painful death, and I don't want to die a death where I'm drugged out of my brain. Yeah. You know, from an emotional perspective, I'm, I, I'm all there. But I have to step back from an emotional perspective and I have to take a biblical perspective on this subject. Uh, we will only really know what we would do if we were in their shoes. Some are in excruciating pain every day. God knows about pain as he suffers it every day as he looks at what happens in this world every day. Sometimes I wonder if keeping people suffering is in reality wrong. I'm so glad that God that God will judge. Only He knows what the truth is, and this is. And really, I think this is this is my point with uh, assisted suicide, is that we need to let God be God, and we need to let Him be the judge of when we live and when we die. Mm. Um, yeah. Um, okay. So, what else we got here? Let's just see here. We've got some other text messages. Ooh, where do we go? Uh, da, 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 da. Let's go here. Uh, the euthanasia idea can be used as a form of population control, which in itself is frightening, and that's that's very true. Mm. Um, it's good for the economy. It is likened to eugenics when it comes to the heavily disabled. A lot of systems like this are brought into place in good faith, but end up being used for more nefarious means. Mm. And uh, is there ever a period in history where that has not happened? You know, that's my big question. Human nature is human nature. And everybody says there's no such thing as a slippery slope except for historians. <laughs> because historians can take you back and, you know, all of these things, all of the issues that are coming up now have all, have all been here in the past. Nothing's new. Nothing is new. And we can see the direction that they went in the past and what they resulted in in the past, whether it's the recent past or the ancient past. Mm -hmm. These are all there and we have the track record and there has never been a historical precedent where a slippery slope has not been created. Simple as that. Okay, continuing. Okay, baby's first breath. 
That's what we call a real miracle. God is great. What a mighty God we serve. You know, and we were just um, looking at that story about uh, when a, uh, being able to, for the very first time ever, watch a baby take its first breath. And I was kind of thinking about that myself because, you know, you take something incredibly simple in comparison to a human body, but you take something incredibly simple like an engine. And I'm a bit of a petrol head, so, you know, from time to time I'll rebuild an engine. I quite enjoy rebuilding an engine. And then you come to that point where you're going to, you know, turn the key and hit the starter motor for the first time. And you sort of, you know, your heart is in your mouth and it's like, is this going thing going to pop? Is it going to fire? What's going to happen here? And you t- turn the key and as you turn the key, the starter motor turns over, it turns the crankshaft uh, you are hoping and praying that as the crankshaft turns, the oil pump is turning and providing oil to the engine so that the bearings don't get scored. Um, while that's turning, the distributor is turning and sending spark to the cylinders. I'm old school, so the carburetor is drawing in air. The fuel pump is running fuel to it, and it's creating a mix that is going down into You've got all of these systems that are just all starting to move simultaneously. You know, the valves are opening to let the fuel air mix in. Then they're closing. The pistons are coming up to create compression. All the petrol heads out there, maybe three of our listeners this morning, know exactly what I'm talking about. But you've got all of these different systems that are combining together to bring that engine to life. And that is so incredibly simple compared to a human body. And when that baby takes that first breath, you've got all of these incredible just unimaginably complex systems that have been sitting there and developing over the last nine months or however long uh, the pregnancy went for. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, they all get that signal, okay, this is the go signal. Go now. And if they don't all go simultaneously, you've got lots of trouble. With my engine, when I've rebuilt the engine... If one of those systems fails, if the spark fails, if the fuel fails, if the compression fails, if the timing fails, if any of those things fail, nothing happens. Nothing happens, which is incredibly discouraging when you spent, you know, days rebuilding the thing. Um, and it's so much more complex with human life and so much more of a miracle. And, you know, I look at that from an evolutionary perspective and I've never met an evolutionist who would ever claim that, you know, one of the engines, which is so simple, could ever happen from an explosion in a volcano. And you're never going to get a working engine come out of an explosion in the volcano. Mm. But you had an explosion in, a, in the universe and we had, you know, the, the, the end result was, you know, a baby with all of these complex systems and they get that spark of life and up and away it goes. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. Okay, Bible study time, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10, please. Let's do it. Let's get into it. Verse 10. Let's read verse 10 through 12. Then let's come back and focus on verse 10. Okay. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. 
when he sees when he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. I will give him the honor of the, a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels. He bore the sin of many and interceded for rebels. Amazing passage, fantastic stuff. Let's go back to verse 10 now and let's focus on on verse 10. Mm. In verse 10, who was it, does the Bible say, crushed the suffering servant, Jesus Christ? It looks like it was the Lord. Absolutely. And go back to verse uh, 4. Verse 4, yeah. Yes. Read for us verse 4. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. Let me read it from this one. Uh, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We saw him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. So who is it that is punishing Jesus here? It's God. It's the Lord. And why would God punish Jesus? Well, it says that he's punished because of us. Because of us. It's a really hard thought to wrap your head around, isn't it? Mm. Because, I mean, you think of the sacrifice that's involved there. Some people, you know, I, I, I came to a person, remember studying with a person one time, and they're like, well, I wouldn't have anything to do with God because, you know, he was somebody who... Uh, allowed Jesus to be crucified. Mm. And, you know, no father would, you know, and Jesus Jesus did all the suffering, Jesus did all of the pain, Jesus did all of the, you know, for our sin, and God just sort of st- stood back and did nothing. And I'm like, well, you know what? Who actually suffered here the most? Mm. So I'm a parent. And I'll tell you right now that the parent suffers more than the child does when the child suffers. Wow. Every time. And... It, you know, if you were a parent and you were seeing your child, what would be easier for, you know, for you as, for, for all of you who are parents and are listening to the show this morning, think about this. What would be easier or what would be harder? Would it be, if you saw your child being beaten up, would it be easier to step in and say, look, I'll take the beating instead or to stand back and allow it to happen? Any parent that is out there that I know, uh, would say, hey, I'll take the beating. Just, I'll take it. Mm. They wouldn't even blink. They wouldn't even, it wouldn't even cross their mind that there would be any other option. Mm. That's the incredible privilege of parenthood and being a parent. Um, and, you know, having a child, um, it you know, brings with it its own unique pain as well. And so here you've got this situation where the father, first of all, he has to step back and not intervene when Jesus gives his life. So Jesus makes a sacrifice. He makes that sacrifice for our sins. But then you've got these multiple passages here within Isaiah chapter 53 where the Bible very clearly says that God punishes Jesus. So this, the plan of redemption, you know, you can look at it very simple, Jesus died for our sins, or you can just plummets depths and it just goes deeper and deeper and deeper. There are just new angles and new aspects that you find on this every day. 
And as I look at this here, I'm like, okay, God is punishing Jesus for our sins. In other words, God said the wages of sin is death. We sinned, we came under the condemnation of death. God said human beings then have to die because death is like, you know, it's like a lethal virus. Um, and so God says, well, the only way to kill the virus is to kill the carriers. So we kill the virus. But God loved us and he didn't want to do that. But he had said that the wages of sin is death. So how do you back down from that? And so God, the only option that God God has is, I will give my life. I will pay the penalty for what human beings have done. He's the one who made the law, so he's the only one who can actually do that. You know, if God sat up in heaven is like, ah, we want to redeem humans, so let's uh, pick that person over there. You go down there and die for them. Would that be fair? No, he didn't make the law. It wasn't his law. Only one who made the law can die for the claims of the law. Mm. All right, so there's a couple of other things that uh, jump out to us here. Um, and we're going to look at this concept that the suffering servant, the Bible says, is an offering for sin. And if we go to verse 7, the Bible says he was oppressed, he was afflicted, he opened not his mouth, he was brought as a lamb to the slaughter. And uh, then you go back to verse 6, where all we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so the Bible says we're all like sheep, we've all gone astray. Jesus comes along, what does Jesus do? He becomes a sheep. He becomes a human being just like us. But not a sheep that has gone astray, a sheep that has stayed on track. And he takes our sins upon himself. Let's look at this in uh, verse 10 here again. It pleased the Lord to bruise him, yet he has put him to grief. Why don't you read for us verse 10 from your translation there? Mm -hmm. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. Okay, what does it say there? His life has been made a... Well, we're going to come back and answer that question. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. We're going to move on with the Bible study. Coolio. Because somebody got the answer to the last one, and that was pretty impressive (laughs) effort. Super impressive effort. Okay, so we were looking at Isaiah chapter 53, where the Bible talks about how, uh, let me see here, verse 10, that Jesus has made an offering for sin. The Bible says, when you shall make his soul an offering for sin. What does it mean that his soul or that that Jesus was made an offering for sin? His life was made an offering for sin. What's your thoughts there? I think it's like something was lost because of sin. It kind of sounds like and Jesus' life sort of like filled that gap or like reinstalled or just like made things whole again. Mm. In a in a in a weird abstract way, yeah, absolutely. It's interesting because you got the um, the Hebrew word here refers to a guilt or reparation offering. Oh, okay, yeah. 
And so, you know, if you look at, say, why don't you flick over to Leviticus chapter 6, verse 2 and 3 for us, Mm -hmm. and you can actually read about what it is here. This is the same word and the the same concept that is being carried over into Isaiah. Leviticus 6, verse 2 and 3. And it says, Suppose one of you sins against your associate and is unfaithful to the Lord. Suppose you cheat in a deal involving a security deposit, or you steal and commit a fraud, or you find lost property and lie about it, or you lie about swearing to tell the truth, or you commit any other such sin. If you have sinned in any of these ways, you are guilty. You must give back whatever you stole, or the money you took by extortion, or the security deposit, or the lost property you found, or anything obtained by swearing falsely. You must make restitution by paying the full price, plus an additional 20% to the person you have harmed. On that same day, you must present a guilt offering. Okay, so that's a pretty cool uh, verse right there, eh? Mm. You know, uh, this was very, very enlightened legislation for the period in which it was written. And the Bible uses the, the same, the same word offering in Isaiah chapter 53 is the same word that is used for this guilt or reparation offering where you are making things right. And so in the same way that we make things right here on this earth when wrongs are done, mm. Jesus steps in and makes things right for us. The law has condemned us to death. The law claims you must die because you are a sinner. Mm. Jesus pays the penalty. He pays the ransom that the law is requiring of us. And when he pays for that, he is making the reparation. And uh, here the Bible speaks about making the reparation with uh, a plus 20%. Mm. I think the blood of Jesus is a lot more than plus 20%. Yeah, but it does show that, like, Jesus has paid the price and then some. or and That's then right. More, like, Absolutely. Mm. Thoroughly paid, paid the price for us. Okay, so we're going to look at this concept in some other passages in the Bible. Um, so we've got a bunch of verses here that we can look at. Let's go to Psalms 32, and we will read verse 1 and 2. So Psalms 32, verse 1 and 2. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what a joy for those who rec- uh, whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. Okay, so how does that kind of reflect the same uh, basic message as Isaiah 53? Um, I guess it's just it's talking about how Jesus really wipes away our sins like, and restores restores the guilt like I mean, and how blessed it is blessed it is when our sins are wiped away yeah and, like how amazing and, and the guilt is gone yeah 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 it's always you know when somebody finds christ and suddenly that burden of sins is just washed away it's always an incredible experience something you know amazing to see mm. in their life mm. let's go to uh, romans chapter 5 and verse 8 so we're going to work our way through a, a bit of a list of verses here And we're going to find the same basic message of Isaiah 53 in each one of those verses. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think the rest of these are all from the New Testament. So Romans 5 and verse 8. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. This is an interesting passage because in verse 8 it says, while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. Mm. Then in, uh, you know, you go down two verses, it says, while we were, you know, 
Um, well, you go back two verses, it says, while we were weak, Christ died for us. Then it says, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Then it says, while we were enemies, Whew. Christ died for us. It kind of raises the bar, you know. Yeah. The Bible says you're weak. Oh, I feel kind of bad about that. The Bible says you're a sinner. I'm, I'm feeling really bad about that. And then the Bible says, actually, you were the enemy of God, you know. And it's kind of like Paul is softening us up for, well, a reality check that we need to have. Yeah, yeah. As sinners... We are the enemies of God and we've been reconciled by the death of Jesus Christ. Mm. All right. Uh, Galatians 2 verse 16 Just is the next one. Finger there and I lost it. Hold on. Yep. Go to eat paper continually. Galatians, Ephesians, <laughs> Philippians, Colossians. Galatians 2.16. And it says, Yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may have been made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we have obeyed the law. For no one will, ha- no one will have ever been made right with God by obeying the law. I think it kind of really pushes the uh, point there throughout those passages. No one will be made right by obeying the law. Yeah. That is an impossibility. That is something that will never take place. And so the Bible says that we are made right by the blood, by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, where he paid the penalty for our sin. Mm. He paid the penalty that the law required, Mm. that the law of God required. All right, Philippians chapter 3 and verse 9. Okay, and it says, where am I, verse 9, and become, ooh, okay, here we go. And become one with him, I no longer count my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. Okay, so God's way of making us right with him, Mm -hmm. what does it depend on? Depends on faith. On faith. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Can we make ourselves right? No, not by keeping the law. Not at all. Only Jesus can make us right, and Mm. Jesus can only make us right with God because he died for us. Mm. This wasn't just Jesus just sort of demonstrating how much he loves us or how much he cares for us. This was Jesus actually paying the penalty, actually providing for our sins. All right, what have we got next? What's our next verse? That was uh, Hebrews Hebrews 2, verse 9. There Mm -hmm. we go. What we do see is Jesus, who was given a position a little lower than the angels, and because he suffered death for us, he is now crowned with glory and honor. Yes, by God's grace, Jesus tasted death for everyone. Okay. Once again, you've got the same concept coming through here. I find it interesting the Bible says that Jesus was made a little lower than the angels. He was made a human being. So if we look at the universe, there is definitely levels within the universe. Mm -hmm. Angels are a level above us. God is above everything. Mm. Uh, Animals are below us. Mm. Insects are below animals. Mm. And you can work your way down through that whole scale. But all the way through we find that Jesus came down to our level because we were the sinners. We were the ones who were in need of redemption and Jesus died for each one of us. He gave his life, he paid the penalty for us. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. We're about to have our question of the day and 
It is now time for... Question of the Day. Well, this morning's question um, is, why were the statues that Solomon carved for the Lord's temple not considered a part of the commandment in Exodus 20 verse 4? Okay, so Exodus 20 verse 4, if we turn over there real quick and we just remind ourselves what the Bible says, and this is part of God's law. So this is, you know, the only part of the Bible that was personally written by God himself with his own finger and carved in stone. That makes it a rather important part of the Bible. The Bible says that this law is eternal. It has always been here. It always will be here. It is something that will never go away. And in verse 4, the Bible says, Thou shalt not make unto thee. So this is the the thou shalt, the commandments. You will not make any carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. In other words, the Bible says you will not make anything that is a likeness, that is a representation of anything that I have created. Mm. This is pretty pretty plain, simple, and uh, but right here on the wall of our studio, there is a likeness of the Dead Sea Crossing. You know, somebody's done a painting. And in the middle of that, there is a likeness of a starfish, a creature that God has created. And so is it then wrong that we have that on our studio wall? It's an interesting thought. Mm. The Bible goes on. And it gives some context. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, or you shall not bow down yourself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, uh, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children of the third and fourth generation, etc., of those that hate him. Okay, so this is an interesting passage where the Bible brings clarity when it says that the issue here is worship. And what God is saying is don't make any carved image that you use as an item of worship. And there's a really great example of this. We talked about this fairly recently, but there's a very fantastic example of it because just after having been you know, given the Ten Commandments, God instructs Moses to make a carved image of a serpent and put it on a pole and tell people to look at it for healing, not for worship. Then that carved image was placed in the temple. It was kept in the temple for many, many, many years uh, as a reminder of that experience in the wilderness. However, there came a time in the history of Israel when that carved image was taken out of the temple. They took it out of the temple. They uh, set it up in the courtyard of the temple. They called it Nehushtan or some weird name like that. And they worshipped it because they'd gone into idolatry. And the moment that they did that, God said, destroy it. And so the issue is not having a carved image. The issue is worshipping the carved image. Now, the questioner is talking about Solomon's temple, and we probably should look at the passages there very quickly to describe, you know, so we can understand what he was actually talking about. You will remember that in Moses' temple, there was a bowl in the courtyard that the Bible calls a laver. Um, so you've got this brass bowl. In Solomon's temple, of course, that brass bowl was way too small and inadequate for the number of worshippers that there were. And so he made a sea. The Bible calls it a sea. So this thing was so big, he doesn't call it a laver, he called it a sea. 
That's pretty impressive. Moreover, he made an altar of brass, uh, 20 cubits the length, 20 cubits the breadth, so that tells you how big the altar was, 10 cubits the height. He also made a molten sea of 10 cubits from brim to brim round its circumference and 5 cubits in height and a line of 30 cubits did surround it. And under it was the similitude or the likeness of oxen which did surround it. Ten in a cubit surrounding the sea. Two rows of oxen were cast when it was cast. And so these oxen were basically the foundation, the support base for this sea that Solomon made. And that's what the question is all about. Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at 1-800-FAITH-FM.